Dear Lord, uh, I ask your presence in this room, though it's here always because we're here and you're in us, but I ask, Father, for your presence in a way that will communicate to each person here that they have not come here by chance and that this is not merely another event on a calendar. This is a divinely appointed moment. This is us in your presence. This is us studying something you prepared for us many, many years ago. This is our time, Father, to sit at your feet. This is precious time. This is kingdom work. This is our heart open to feedback from you by your spirit, more properly called conviction. We ask, Father, for that. We ask for guidance. Many of us have come tonight with questions, concerns, worries, needs. And we've spent most of our day thinking about how these things will get addressed. But Father, take them out of our mind because Father, as you solve those and uh, we give our attention to your word, good things come and we ask for that, Father. And in the study tonight, Father, I pray that you would show me all that I need to say even if it's beyond what I've studied. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get back to the story of Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. This is the soap opera uh, of David's family, three children of David, who collectively are the product of David's failures to deal with sin quickly and decisively. And all of what comes in this uh, little three-part drama is ultimately tied back to David's choice to take multiple wives, to produce multiple families, to allow for jealousies and rivalries to develop out of them, and so on. And the effect of all of what David does in this area of his life is, has ramifications far beyond his own family. It has ramifications for the whole nation. And that extends on for years. So that's where we're at. We're in this section where we learn how the man who had a heart after God didn't always do the right thing, and in particular, some key weaknesses in his family life and in his leadership style that resulted in some lasting issues, some lasting concerns. Last week in chapter 13, we studied what I guess I'll call act one of this drama, where Amnon acted on his lust for his sister, half-sister, Tamar, and then he raped her. And remember, he was encouraged to do so by that cousin who was seeking to manipulate the whole scenario, the relationship between Amnon and Absalom, for his own advantage, hoping to uh, gain some alliance with whomever will be the heir to the throne. Well, that cousin has now poisoned one brother against the other. And that is that Amnon, the one who took Tamar, is now the enemy of Tamar's brother, Absalom. And he is now ready to seek his revenge. And the story of his revenge is starting now with Act 2 of this drama. That starts in verse 23 of 2 Samuel 13. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, Well, if not, please let my brother Anon go with us. But the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Well, we learned this last week, the relationships here a little bit last week. I'll put this back up to remind you. We're looking here particularly at these two 
men here, and the sister, of course, was the, the reason they're now at odds. Absalom and Amnon are half-brothers, and we learned last week that he's been intent on avenging his sister after the rape, after Amnon raped Tamar. Absalom's been on the warpath for his half-brother. We learned that last week. If you remember, he told his sister, be quiet about this. Uh, it'll all get sorted out. But when he said that, it was obvious he was being patient so that he could plot the right time, the right circumstance. He wanted to take revenge in his own timing, in his own manner. And now, after Absalom knew that um, he took out Amnon, that would make him a pariah. So he's trying to be very careful about the way he does this, anticipating the outcome, anticipating the ramifications, being ready for what comes next. So his planning revolves around getting Amnon away from Amnon's own defense, which principally is David. David has been defending Amnon, protecting Amnon for the better part now of two years. So he has to get him away from David, and then he has to have the whole thing come to pass in a location where Absalom can escape. Because if he does it in the wrong place, he himself will be captured. And he decides that sheep shearing time is the perfect opportunity to solve both those problems because sheep are outside the city, they graze, and they're sheared somewhere out in their uh, grazing area in a barn or in some kind of shed where the sheep shearers work. And in verse 23, we're told Absalom has herds near a town called Baal Hazor. I don't know if maps help you or not, but here's where it was. A little north of Jerusalem. In fact, it's only about 14 miles north. Sheep shearing was done usually a couple times a year. Each time when it happens, to shear an entire herd of sheep takes a while and a lot of men. So it's an all-day effort for multiple days. And it's a time of great feasting as well. So the, the, the tendency or the practice was you spend all day shearing sheep in a fold in, in a barn or a pen or somewhere, and then at the end of a long day of work, all the guys would get together with a bonfire, and they'd just eat and drink until they fall asleep, and then they'd do that again the next day, and they'd do that for days on end. So sheep shearing was a big party, and it happened a couple times a year. And it was common for some of the family members to join the men who do the work when possible, especially for the festivities at night. So, you know, no one likes to miss a party. So the women or the children or families would come out sometimes, depending on whether it was close or what the situation was. And so that's why Absalom invites his father David and David's servants. He says, why don't you come to my shearing party? And David says, no, I'll just be a burden on you, and, you know, you don't need to have me there. Which is really just a polite way of David saying, no, I don't feel like going. And Absalom continues encouraging David to go, but the king keeps saying no. And the sense you get, I think, is that Absalom expected David to decline. In fact, his whole plan depends on it. But it's a setup for the second ask. So Absalom's true target is Amnon. But David uh, is going to protect Amnon against his brother, as he has been doing for two years. So when David refuses the invitation to join Absalom, you know, uh, hospitality and the, and the like, it's a big deal in that culture and then in that time and still is today. So to refuse an invitation is a, a bit of a slight. And so as David has refused to join the feasting, there's a sense now in, on, on David of an obligation to reciprocate in some way. So that's what Absalom is depending on. So here again, not unusual for family members to attend. So when he shifts his target from David to Amnon and the rest of his brothers, 
that doesn't necessarily tell David that something is up. Remember, the history of these two brothers and Tamar is well known. And David would be naturally suspicious if Absalom wanted to get Amnon alone for any reason. And you notice that in the text, right? When David says, I want my brother to go, David's first response to that is what? Verse 26, right? Why? What are you up to here? So David knows Absalom hates his brother. And he knows that Absalom's going to look for revenge. This is not a surprise. And that's why Absalom's been waiting two years. He's waited two years to find the right scheme, and in that delay, he has lulled David and Amnon into assuming that Absalom's no longer interested in revenge. And so this is a very skillful, patient plan that he's working here against his target. And uh, when you see David's response in verse 26, you can tell David is protecting Amnon. He's, been, he's put himself in that position. The rest of the brothers are invited also, and so that Again, lowers David's defenses a little bit. He says, well, I guess if you're all going and it seems like it's okay now and why not? So even after two years, David is suspicious but willing to give it a try here. Remember, David's failure to deal with Amnon in the first place, to, frankly, to allow the rape since he knew there was a potential for that in the first place, but then secondly, to favor him afterward and not take him to task for it, that favoritism now is just multiplying the fuel on the fire within the family here because you can see David still favoring Amnon in the sense that he's protecting him against a brother that he knows is out to get him. Now, maybe that's the natural thing to do at this point, but he backed himself into that position. Amnon committed sin against Tamar. Absalom is now doing the same. He's preparing to murder someone. So you you can't blame David for their choices, obviously, but David did play a role in this soap opera, and specifically that role was not disciplining Amnon's sin in the first place, uh, or perhaps even further back, not being more savvy about the fact that he had these kids, this this kid who had a lustful interest in a half-sister. So now David, here's this response from Absalom, this request, and he doesn't listen to his own instincts here. And he allows, when pressed, he allows Amnon to accompany the group. So he allows him to go this 14-mile trip up to Baal Hazor. And so here's the plan. Absalom's plan is to get David away from Amnon, as he has just done, so that David can't protect Amnon anymore. And with that two-year delay, he now expects Amnon's guard to be down while they're out at the sheep-shearing party. And he gets the opportunity now that he's been waiting for. In verse 28, Absalom commands his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. I have, have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous. Be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. All right, so the plan is pretty straightforward, right? Get him drunk, and then kill him. When he's tired, when he's not of his right mind, you know, late at night after a party, just all of you pounce on him. And he assures them, look, I know you're going to be worried. You're killing the king's son, but I'm the king's son. I'm telling you to do it, which is basically to say all the guilt, all the consequences will be on me. And so they do as they're told, and they kill Amnon. Once again, you have an example here of David's sons following in David's footsteps because the earlier son Amnon followed David by committing an immoral sexual act against a vulnerable woman and now you have a second son who's followed after David's pattern of committing murder in the aftermath of sexual sin. 
So David can't do those sorts of things without expecting that his example is going to set a tone for the rest of his family life. Just, you can't escape that. And in response to the attack, the rest of David's sons who were at the feast, they get on mules and they flee the scene. Now, you can kind of imagine how that might have gone. Uh, first of all, Amnon would not have been the only one drunk. So you've got a bunch of weary party guys who wake up to the sound of a man getting murdered, realize, oh my gosh, Absalom's out for Amnon after all. He didn't forget about it. He's here to kill us all. And then they get panicky, they get on their mules, and then a bunch of drunk men run off into the desert with their mules. So it's a chaotic scene. They just kind of flee. They don't even know where they're going. They're just trying to get away from him. They don't know whether Absalom is on the war path and he's about to commit mass murder against David's sons because that would have been the fear here. The fear is that he's not just after Amnon. He's after David, but in the sense that he's going to kill all of David's sons as a way of getting back at David for protecting Amnon. But that was not the plan. And so the other sons are leaving unharmed, and in the chaos of that night, rumors start to fly. And one of those rumors makes its way back to David faster than the sons on the mules do. So that's in verse 30. Now it was while they were on their way that the report came to David, saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his clothes, lay on the ground, and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. It was a Mark Twain that said, rumor makes its way around the world before the truth gets its sneakers on. And, or a lie makes its way around the world. So a rumor of this incident reaches David before the sons themselves are able to get back to the palace. Now if you wonder, how is that possible? It's not really that hard to imagine. You know, if, if you just imagine a servant overhearing Amnon giving instructions to the other servants, when I tell you, go kill Absalom, you know, go kill Amnon, then that servant would have had to have just left at that point and started running back. You know, a grown man in decent shape can run 14 miles in two hours. He's probably back to David before the event has even happened or is about to happen. And what did he know when he left? He knew that, that Absalom was about to take on revenge for his brother. But again, everyone's been thinking about this for two years. They've, they've assumed this would happen. And you know how stories change over time. The story moved from he's going to take revenge to he's going to kill us all. And the man leaves with all of that in his head. And he gets back and his story is he's killing them all. All right. And David, for at least a time, bears a burden that is, I guess, equal or at least equal, if not greater, to the one that he bore when the Lord told him that his son from Bathsheba was going to die. Imagine the emotion this guy's going through right now in these few hours as he contemplates the loss of all of his sons, right? In verse 31, we're told he lays on the ground. I imagine he's sobbing or maybe he's just stunned or irrational or perhaps angry. And the text doesn't say anything more than this, but I'm going to add another possibility here. I think he may have been praying, What did he do when he found out that that, uh, Bathsheba's son was going to die, right? He prayed to the Lord for mercy. And would he have even considered to pray for the lives of boys who have been reportedly already killed? I don't know. Now, in that previous moment, David's prayer could not save a son who was still alive. In this moment, should he have prayed, he will see his sons return back to him because the rumor isn't true. And the cousin Jonadab, who is the one, if you remember, who encouraged Amnon to rape Tamar in the first place, 
he now speaks up in this moment to correct the inaccurate report. Verse 32. Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose that they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely, all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now, this is a cousin, and remember, that we talked about earlier, who's been playing both sides. All right? So he sees David mourning the loss of his sons. He steps in uh, to advise the king, no, I think only Amnon has died. Now, he, he tells the king why. That is, he says, we know that Absalom's been trying to kill this guy for a while to take revenge. That's what he's done right now. We should not have assumed he would have taken out all of the brothers. But the way he says it seems awfully confident, doesn't it? So much so that you might begin to wonder how he knew this. Uh, in fact, you might even ask, why is he even here? Uh, perhaps he has worked his way up into a position in David's cabinet. Uh, perhaps he knew something was going to happen that night and he wanted to be around to take advantage of it. Uh, however he came to be there, where was he not? He was not at the shearing party. So the only way he could know the truth is if he was part of the conspiracy to bring it about. Unless you want to assume he's just this insightful. I don't think so. I think he knew exactly what Absalom was going to do. Remember earlier we said this is the guy that uh, befriended Amnon in the hope that he could put some kind of tension between these two possible heirs. It's not a stretch to think that he has now manipulated Absalom in helping plan this and put himself in a position to advise the king as a friendly uh, counselor with a, a helpful piece of advice that turns out to be true later and then ingratiates himself to the king. He's a pretty sneaky guy, it would seem, at this point. So he tells David, I think you're, you're worrying about nothing. Now, uh, turning back to David, the text never records David's reaction to that. But I assume it was well-received. I mean, knowing Amnon is dead is probably bad enough, but to at least hear that all the rest of the sons are alive is probably relief. So think about now what the Lord is doing here. It's funny how so much of the text here is devoted to this little misconception. You know, this, this bad rumor it takes a major piece here in the text. Why? It seems as if the Lord set this moment up for David so that David would fear a greater outcome for a time and in so doing lead him to seek the Lord, as he may have done. And then when Jonadab speaks up and the, David gets to see the Lord moving to his side in this and giving him back something he thought he lost, it's an opportunity for David to learn something in the process. That's about the only way I can understand this. But one way or the other, the confirmation comes soon thereafter. Those sons on the mules, drunk as they were, eventually find their way home. Verse 34, now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come according to your servant's word. So it had happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept, and also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. We don't know how long this was, but it was probably a little while. Probably took them a while to gather themselves, figure out where they were at night, get, get home, and so on. So David has some rough hours of thinking that he's got no sons, or maybe trusting in Jonadab's report. Either way, uh, now they've come back. It says there at the outset in verse 34, Absalom has fled. Now, he knows he can't come back. He knows he can't come back. He just, whether it's because David enforces the law, which would require he die, or if it's simply David being upset at him. Either way, he can't come back. 
much, even less than that, or even more than that, his brothers will kill him. So he's got no friends. He can't come back. David ignored Amnon's rape of Tamar, but Absalom can't be so sure he'll be ignored for what he did, and so he, he flees. He, he goes on the lamb. Meanwhile, the rest of the sons come back. They tell, obviously, their appearance tells David they didn't die, tearful reunion, all the rest. But David's family is being torn apart here at the seams, one son at a time. First Amnon versus Absalom. Now it's Absalom versus his brothers and David. And this just continues to fester, continues to get worse. Every believer who would ever want to seek for spiritual maturity in their walk has to appreciate the difference between judgment, discipline, and consequences. Judgment for sin, discipline for sin, and the natural consequences of sin. God's, all, all, of, all of these are in play here at some level with David, or in some cases the negative of them are. For example, God's, God's judgment, let's start with that one, God's judgment, that's the penalty for sin. But by your faith in Christ, you receive a relief from the outcome of that, uh, out, from, from judgment forevermore. So judgment is the consequence for sin that is taken away from us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of God in our place. Nevertheless, the Bible does say that God's children will receive discipline. And discipline is meant to encourage us to move away from sin and into obedience. Now, discipline is a far cry from judgment, both in terms of purpose and form. The purpose of judgment is to bring about justice against ungodliness as a penalty for an offense against God. It is not restorative. (laughs) There's no attempt there to return someone to health. It is purely a penalty, and it's forever. Uh, Discipline, oh, and by the way, the form of it is the wrath of God, poured out for an eternity in torment. But the purpose of discipline is to encourage greater godliness, and therefore it's an expression of love from God to his children. And the form it takes is in this life and in various ways that train us up but never destroy us. It's not its intent. Hebrews, as you probably know, chapter 12, gives us a nice summary of the purpose of discipline. Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if the answer to that is an unloving father. But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us up for our good so that we may share his holiness. Right? That's, the, that's the idea of discipline. And if you're a parent, this is not news. You know how this works, right? What are we seeing in David's experience? Has God brought judgment on David? Well, far from it. In fact, remember when David first learned of his sin from Nathan and was repentant about it, what was Nathan's first response? He said to him, the Lord's forgiven you. So there's no judgment from God in David's life. Nothing that's happening to David in this story is judgment. You have to keep be careful about using that word. There's only one kind of judgment God gives for sin. It's death, which refers to the second death, eternal death. That's not coming to David, all right? But because God loves David, God also 
gives David discipline. And that started particularly with the death of his son. When God appeared through Nathan and told David, I'm going to take your son's life. That was a disciplinary move. That was God bringing a consequence to David in a very specific sense for the purpose of moving David to greater holiness. That was the scourging, if you will, that Hebrews talks about. Every son that God has, he scourges in that sense. So he resorted to discipline to shepherd David's heart, which he does for all of us in a multitude of ways. All right, so that's judgment versus discipline. But there's a third one. The third one is consequences for sin. Now, in a sense, generally, you could say everything's a consequence, right? Discipline is a consequence, whatever. Yes, but I'm using the term a little more technically. There is judgment, hell. There is discipline, God bringing specific things into our life by his design, which are intended for us to learn. Things he does not do for unbelievers. Things that he only does for believers. God does not discipline an unbeliever. They're illegitimate children. They're not his children. He disciplines his children. You ever tried spanking a stranger's kid in the grocery store? (laughs) Wouldn't recommend it. All right, so God does not discipline unbelievers. That's the distinction. Judgment is, is the ultimate penalty for sin. We have no concern for that because of faith. We have discipline, but it's good that it comes. Then there are consequences. Consequences are the natural result of our actions. Believers experience the discipline of the Lord. Unbelievers don't, but everyone experiences consequences from their sin. The consequences of our actions follow us just as they do unbelievers. Now, sometimes by the grace of God, those consequences aren't as severe as they could be, and other times they're just as bad as we feared. And those consequences now, they don't stop at just one effect, one action, one moment, like with David's son dying. God's discipline is metered out in a very purposeful way, tuned, calibrated, just to what God needs to accomplish, just to what we can handle. It's how he works with his children. No differently than a parent who's very careful in calibrating how they might spank a child or how they might treat a child in other contexts. We know the difference between abuse and discipline, and we're careful about that, or so we should be. But consequences, they ripple out like waves on a pond. The consequences of David's sin in this case, the sin of taking multiple wives and of having this favoritism in his discipline, his lack of follow-through, etc., those consequences are piling up now, and they're moving outward. In addition to the discipline that God did by taking the child's life, I can count already at least six major consequences that have come as a result naturally of what David has done. First, David developed an attitude of favoritism for his children. That itself is a consequence of his choosing to have multiple wives. And he turned a blind eye to his son's sin, especially Amnon, which is another consequence of having these mixed loyalties and competing affections, which were not intended by God. And then this led Amnon, rather, to lust after his sister Tamar, which then led to a rape of his sister. That led Absalom to hate his brother, and that led to a division of the sons in the family. And those events forced David to protect Amnon and kind of reinforce that separation and that distinction, which only created greater resentment and conflict. And that led to Absalom eventually having to kill his brother because he was so intent on resolving this conflict in that way. Now you have, as a result of that... Absalom fleeing, which deprives David of the company of a third son, 
that he wishes he could have around, right? That separation will have further consequences for David and for the kingdom as Absalom eventually mounts a coup attempt against his father. That eventually leads to civil war in the family. I mean, the ripples just keep going. And it's hard to overstate how much harm can come from one decision. But imagine how different the story would be if David had not had sin with Bathsheba. Go back to the moment on the roof. What if he just didn't look or act on it? But yet at the same time as we studied last week, without Bathsheba, would there have been a Solomon? Right? Which simply reminds us of this, that though the consequences of sin can be great, the God who extends mercy to us is greater. That even as God allows consequences, I mean, he may, it's hard to know from our side which consequences he stopped. Right? It's hard to appreciate how much mercy and grace he is extending to us in the mitigation of consequence because we only see the ones that come to pass. We don't realize how bad it could have been. But nonetheless, he leaves some intact, certainly. He lets some happen. But he also gives us the grace to deal with them, to move through them. And ultimately, he turns the whole thing to good in the end. Wearsby once said this, Grace means that God, in forgiving you, does not kill you. Grace means that God, in forgiving you, gives you strength to endure the consequences. Grace frees us so that we can obey the Lord. It does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. If I sin, and in the process of sinning break my arm, I will receive forgiveness for my sin, but I'll still have to deal with a broken arm. Right? So David sinned, and he broke a lot of things. And now he's dealing with the consequences of it, and yet God is still with him. God is still turning relationships like the one he had with Bathsheba into Solomon's. And he's not done with that. I mean, in the end, he's going to use it all to his glory. But you never want to make one of these things negate the other. You never want to say that God, because he has grace and mercy, means I don't have to worry about what I do when I sin. No, you should be very concerned if you sin. Uh, in the meantime, knowing that there are consequences and that sometimes discipline will come as well, you don't turn God into an evil figure in your mind and assume that you're going to be destroyed by him and that you have no hope with him. And you know, don't run to the opposite pity party either. It's just like a kid, right? What do you do with a mopey teenager who doesn't like to be disciplined when they get in trouble? Get over it. You know I love you. Just don't do this again. If you can hear God speaking in that way with a little more love, maybe, that's what he does, right? And in the meantime, don't expect that when you say I'm sorry to God, that that ends the natural consequences. It might in some level, but it doesn't always, and usually not at all. Our confession and our repentance stops what? Discipline. Our confession and our repentance gives opportunity for God to stop adding discipline, just like you as a parent. Your son or daughter does something wrong. There are some natural consequences with their friends, with the schools, with the law, and you add discipline. They repent, they show the progress you want. You relax the discipline, but you still go to court with them when the ticket is due. Right? There's still the natural consequences that come as a result, and you can't fix those. And I should argue, neither should you try. There is some value in them. The Bible says if God routinely intervened to stop our consequences, then he would be seen as mocked by our own disobedience. Paul says that in Galatians 6-7. He says, 
do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So Paul's saying you you can't live a life hell-bent on sinning and then assume because you're a child of the king, he's going to wipe the consequences off every time. He says you're mocking God when you do that. He's going to let you sow to your own reaping if that's your intent. Again, this isn't your salvation we're talking about. Judgment is not the question we're talking about. We're talking about either discipline or consequences. And, you know, in the church today, maybe in general, maybe it's always been this way, we don't typically like it when people remind us that, this is a conse- that these things happen, that this is a, a quality of life when we follow Christ. We don't like the thought that there is anything to have to be held account to. Be careful with that thinking. You have, as the old saying goes, you got fire insurance, <laughs> you're saved, that's where, the, that's where the work starts. That's not where it ends. Now he says what? Don't lose heart in doing good. For in due time, you'll reap from that. That is the eternal reward that comes for work in, in service to Christ. All right. So David can't mock God by his refusals to uh, address the systemic issues in his family as he is doing at this point, letting his, his family kind of fall apart under his, his care and parenting them in, in a ways that I think are, are patently wrong, so the consequences keep coming, and that moves us now into the next part of this story, the transition to the next act, as I call it, Act 3. That starts in verse 37 and into chapter 14. We go there now. It says, Now Absalom fled and went to Telmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was Comforted concerning Amnon, since he was dead. All right, let's uh, put a little map up here again. The next, this is uh, the earlier movement up to the shearing. Now, this is where Absalom flees from, a much further distance up to what is present-day Upper Galilee. That's present-day Golan Heights right there. So he spends three years now in exile. And so now David's first son is gone. His second son, which we've never heard much about except that he was born, which would seem to suggest he died early. Second son's gone. Uh, That leaves Absalom, third son, as heir. So the heir to the throne of Israel is living in exile in a vassal's territory. And we're told David is still very fond of this son, despite the fact that he killed one of his other sons. In fact, we're told David is mourning the loss of this guy every day. And then interestingly, in that verse 39, it says, David is relieved at Amnon's death. Now, why, why would that be? Well, basically, Absalom solved a problem for David. First, it brought about the justice for Amnon that the law required, and yet David couldn't bring himself to execute, right? And so in that sense, he's relieved that Absalom took that duty off his hands. And secondly, David no longer has to guard Amnon. David's no longer putting himself between Absalom and Amnon, every time he turns around, he's got to worry that these two kids are like kids in the back seat on a long drive, you know, that they're going to go at it. Keep to your side. But in this case, they're going to kill each other. So he now has that taken away. He's, he's free of that duty. But even now, he is not willing to cut the head off this snake. That is, even now, with all that's come because he didn't deal with Amnon properly, he won't deal with Absalom properly. 
And that moves us forward to chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who's been mourning for the dead for many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. All right, so Joab, you remember him, commander of David's army, the guy that was uh, able to win that position by invading the city through the water tunnel, also the guy that David should have dealt with a long time ago when he killed Abner. Remember that? But now, after three years of Absalom in hiding, Joab develops this concern. It appears, and it's not stated, but it would appear as though Joab's concern that Absalom, the heir to the throne, is living outside the land, and he wants to bring him back in for the stability of the country. And God told David that his heir was not going to be Absalom. It was going to be Solomon. But it doesn't appear as though David shared that with a lot of people. So Bathsheba knows it, presumably Solomon knows it, but it's not being spoken of generally. And in fact, everyone assumes it's going to be Absalom. And the concern Joab has is that you have the heir to the throne hiding in another territory, and he wants him in the palace, prepared to take power when necessary, preparing for that very day, and more importantly, reconciled with David. So he devises a plan that will help persuade David into pardoning Absalom, because with a pardon, he could come home. So he recruits an actress uh, from a town, I'm calling her such because that's what she ends up doing. She comes from a town uh, called Tekoa. So Tekoa is just south of Jerusalem by a short distance, for what it's worth. Now, why is that important? Well, he needed an unknown character. He needed someone no one knew so that she could play this role and no one would know different. And he gives her this role to play. She's a mourning woman, and he's going to use her to manipulate David, and the story he's going to give her to tell we learn next, and she's going to go before David with this story. Now, you know, David should not have had Joab in this position. Later, he's going to have to have his son deal with Joab, but the point is, David, you you see the pattern just really obviously right now. People who David should not trust, his weakness was leaving them in a position to influence him. Family member, Joab, whoever. David had this Um, in some ways, admirable uh, reservoir of mercy and grace and and, uh, forgiveness, which I think pictures Christ, certainly. But when you take mercy or grace and you you divorce it from justice, you you end up with license. And uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. But anyway, let's look at what the words are that she's to speak. Verse four. Now, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. The king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, truly, I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant has two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them, so one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family is risen against your maidservant, and they say, hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, he will not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenge of blood will not continue to destroy, otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, 
And as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. You notice how much her story mirrors David's situation, right? Well, that was, that's the whole point. Two sons, one kills the other. Now people want justice for the death of the deceased. Uh, Absalom killed Amnon. And because the law would require Absalom to die, that's why he hasn't come back. But if he does come home and David followed the law, he would die. And that would mean David loses another heir, another son. And David doesn't want that. Moreover, the people of Israel, we learned, don't want that. They don't want to see that outcome either. So Absalom is the most popular of David's sons, the people's choice, the heir apparent. Everybody wants him home. Everybody wants this rift resolved. No one really cares whether justice is done or not for Amnon. Here again, what should David do? He should apply the law without favoritism. I mean, there's no option for mercy under the law for murder. You go to death. That's the only penalty that the law allows. So David should have held his son accountable here. But Joab, as you heard, knows that David's inclined to let him go unpunished. And so he hopes this woman will just nudge David over the, the, the line and get him to make that decision. So she spins her tail, and she appeals to David to save her last son from justice. She, she says to David, I, don't just, I, I just don't want to lose my last heir. Right? My, father, my, my dead husband's name would go out of existence. And of course, had David judged this situation according to the law, then the woman wouldn't have gotten her way either, right? I mean, all, all David has to do is just apply the law. Just do what it says. Sorry, your other son, bring him here. He needs to die. I'm sorry. It's not my fault that you lose your heir. It's not my fault that your, father's, your husband's name goes away. It's tragic. It's a shame. Your son should have thought about that, but I can't control that. It's called consequences, right? But David's not doing that with his own son. And David decides... Uh, as you see, as he goes through this, he's going to make a decision that will ultimately influence how he treats Absalom. What's interesting about David's situation, though, is he is in a different situation than the story in one key way. The heir to the throne is not Absalom. If Absalom dies, he loses a son. That's meaningful, yes, but he doesn't lose an heir. He doesn't lose the kingdom. The kingdom isn't going to Absalom anyway. So David obviously doesn't see the connection to the story yet, so he agrees to make the decision. First, he agrees to say, I'll get back to you. And she's been told by Joab, no, 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 don't go without a decision. We're trying to push him here. So then she comes a second time, and in verse 8 she says that if you make me wait, then me and my father's house will bear the sin of not holding my son accountable. What she's saying is, as long as nothing is done, I'm guilty of not keeping the law, of of holding my other son accountable. I can't just wait. People are going to get mad at me. So then David says, all right, I'll protect you. If anyone tries to touch you, Tell him I'm going to get involved, right? But that's still not what she wants. So in verse 11, she says, well, other people will take action against my son. Other people will be vigilantes and, and kill him because he's guilty. So then David grows weary. He gives in. He says, all right, fine. He's pardoned. That is, not one hair on his head will, will be hurt. That's David's way of pardoning. He says, your son now is pardoned from that offense. He pardons her boy without justification. That is, without the law giving him really any license to do that. It's just an act of mercy. Now, I'm not saying the king couldn't show mercy. What I'm saying is this fictitious boy is representative of Absalom. And so now David, having done this for a stranger's kid, is going to be far more persuadable to doing it for his own son. But he has no justification in either case. Just favoritism. Ironically, he tells her no no hair on his head will be bothered 
which is ironic because Absalom's eventual fall comes as a consequence of his hair. All right, now, with David trapped, the actress moves to the second half of the plan. All right, so she's got him right where she wants him. He's made a decision that now when she shows it back to himself, he'll have no choice but to do the same for Absalom. Verse 12, then the woman said, please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, speak. The woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty in that the king did not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. And yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I've come to speak this word to my lord the king is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, please let the word of my lord the king be comforting for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil and may the lord your God be with you. So to kind of cut down some of the flattery here. This is what the woman says. She says, after asking permission to speak, she says, why have you planned to allow the heir of your throne and the heir over the people of God, that is Israel, why have you allowed him to suffer a loss in the way that you're protecting my son from? Suggesting you're bearing guilt for not pardoning your own son in the same way. If it were acceptable for the king to pardon some obscure mother's son, why not the heir to the throne? And in verse 14, She points to something very important. This is the key verse, really, in what she says. Verse 14. She points to a biblical truth, but in classic false teaching form, she uses a biblical truth in an unbiblical way. She says, our lives are short, and once they're gone, you can't do anything except move on. You can't come back. And she says, we know God is not in the business of taking life, meaning, what she means by that, he's not directed at destroying humanity. He's directed at finding a way to save it. Therefore, the quest of life should be to find that plan, how he's getting banished ones restored, or the gospel, right? So in a sense, she's describing the gospel. Our purpose in life should be to seek out how God is moving banished people back into his fold, right? All right, that is the gospel. That is the message of Scripture. I mean, that's a very simple way to put it, I guess, but it works, okay? But she's misusing that truth and misapplying it to demand a certain outcome in this case that is contrary to justice, right? God makes a way for us to avoid judgment for our sin, but that pattern, that truth, does not become a rule for every situation of life. For example, the fact that God shows you mercy in your sin through faith in Christ does not mean that if you were a judge sitting on a bench somewhere that you have to let everyone who comes before you go free, Right? In other words, the fact that God restores people through some method according to his purpose doesn't mean we cannot hold other people accountable to laws or rules or standards. It's a bizarre kind of concept, right? What she's saying is that because God is a God of mercy, because God has a way of bringing us back from banishment, you should bring him back from banishment. It's just such classic misuse of scripture, right? It's this classic idea that I can take the words in one context and in one sense and just appropriate them in a totally different context, but because the words have magic, they work everywhere you take them. You know, that's not true, by the way. (laughs) It doesn't work. They only mean what they're meant to mean, and any misuse of them doesn't give them power to do something new. They don't have power apart from what God intended, and that's what she's trying to do here. Now, 
The logic made sense to David, or at least he didn't feel he had any other choice. Maybe he's self-conscious here. Maybe he realizes, yeah, you're right. I kind of did the wrong thing now for you. How can I not do it for my own son? Maybe he's just still pulling that self-consciousness through from Bathsheba. Every time we turn around, it seems like he won't hold anybody accountable because he's too, he might be thinking too much about the fact that he did the same thing. And maybe that's why he didn't hold his sons accountable. Anyway, I doubt this is the first time that David heard someone argue for bringing Absalom back. Over the last three years, you don't think his brothers asked for that? You don't think Joab asked for that? Joab's the guy that put the whole thing together here. Right? Somebody has come to David and said, you know, why don't you pardon your son? And as a result, when David hears the very same words coming out of this stranger from some little town, he immediately suspects, I know who told you to do this. Verse 18, the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide anything from me that I'm about to ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replied, as your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant in order to change the appearance of things. Your servant Joab has done this, but my lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God. You know all this in the earth. Okay, so David finally wakes up. He realizes this woman's been playing him. And he says, okay, I want you to tell me the truth from now on. She says, yes. And then he says, did Joab put you up to this? And sandwiched between statements of flattery, she admits in the middle there, yeah, I kind of lied. He put me up to it. And at that point, David shifts his attention to Joab. I assume he's in the moment. It seems, though, in the way the text is written, that he's maybe there in the room. He's an advisor. Certainly, he's the commander of the army. It wouldn't be a surprise. So he's maybe watching this whole thing, hoping it works. And at this point, oops. Verse 21, the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go, therefore, and bring back the young man, Absalom. Oh, all right, so there's your problem. There's your problem in a nutshell. Right there, you see that? What just happened? And his response to Joab is, I'll do what you want. What happened to kill this man? He just tried to, to fool me with a lying woman. From a, There's no sense on David's part here of ever holding someone accountable. And I'm not saying David's all bad. Of course, he's a great guy. We've talked about that. But this section is about where he's not so great. And the, the, all, if, if you want to know how David went wrong following the sin of Bathsheba, that's a whole separate issue. But if you want to know how he went, you see it right here. You see this is a man who is, is allowing others to manipulate him and not holding anyone accountable. And Joab must have been shocked at this. I'm not saying he, he didn't expect that David might, con, might uh, concede. David is ten, tends to do that. But having been caught, what did you think he was expecting? David's response doesn't come at him the way he expects. Verse 22, Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. Then Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord, the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house. Let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So I think it's remarkable that Joab has uh, been able to get past so much to this point and that David has not chosen to do anything about it because he has to know at this point this guy is not trustworthy. And And yet, David's trapped by his own words with this woman. And so he says, I I guess I really have no choice. Bring him back. 
begging a huge question. If he misses his son and he's willing to bring him back now, why didn't he do it? What's, what's been stopping David all this time? Maybe because of how it might have appeared? Maybe because he didn't want to have to be put in that position again where the law said he had to do one thing and he didn't want to have to do it and as long as Absalom's not around, he doesn't have to face that problem. You ever met people like that? They really hate to be the bad guy. They hate to have to keep the rules. They hate to be the one that actually has to bring down the penalty and they'll do anything to avoid that moment and if you're one of those people that likes to see people do the right thing and you would like to see people held accountable, doesn't it just drive you up a wall when someone won't do that, right? We've been around people like that. And yet, when you're the one in trouble, you like the mercy, you like the grace, everyone gets that too. But on the other hand, you also expect consequences at some point, right? You're not upset necessarily at being held accountable necessarily. I mean, we all get that range of emotion. It's, it's, we all know the feelings that come with all of that. Here you see David just failing left and right to do the hard thing. So is mercy a bad thing? No, but mercy exists because the rule is justice, right? So when no one follows the rule, mercy is no longer mercy. It's just injustice. It's licensed to sin. That's what David has been sowing here. Back to what Paul said in Galatians. So with each decision to not hold a son accountable, David makes his family situation that much worse, and now an advisor the same. In the process, he proves that mercy disconnected from justice is permissiveness. That's what he's created. A little parenting advice for anybody who's looking for some. So David orders Joab to go bring back Absalom, which happens, he comes home, but he can't come to the palace, he can't see David. David still has mixed emotions. It's interesting now, the guy that was missing his son every day, when he finally comes back, won't see him. David's essentially issued an official state pardon, but he's not re- personally forgiven him. So he can be in the city, he's not gonna be killed, but he don't wanna see him. As it turns out, David's decision to restore Absalom in this particular way only makes things worse. Because after Absalom returns, now he's close to power and in a position to do something to hurt, to hurt David or to undermine David's authority, but he's all the more put out by the fact that David won't have anything to do with him. More offended by it. And As a result, he becomes a greater threat over time and more conflict arises. And making things worse, Absalom is a rock star. Verse 25, last verses for the night. Now, in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. To Absalom, there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So, you know, if this part of the story starts to sound a little bit like the introduction of Saul in 1 Samuel, the one that everyone thought was such a good-looking guy and the perfect choice as king, remember that? Well, that's because the pattern here is the same. You have Saul, in that case, Absalom here, rock stars, complete with gorgeous hair, and the scriptures say no one in Israel was more handsome, but notice it says so highly praised at the end of that, which is to say, scripture is saying he is regarded as the most handsome by public opinion. That's the point. Scripture is not definitively saying that if you could have seen every human being in that day, he would have by far been the most handsome. That's a subjective discernment. Anyway, he's saying that 
in the consensus of Jewish society, he was most handsome Jewish man. And no one saw any defect in this guy. His hair <laughs> seems to be of particular fame. Uh, not only that it was good looking, but that it was abundant. He even made an annual show of how he cut it. And the weight of it was five pounds of hair at the end of the year. Five pounds of hair. Can you imagine? I bet there were squealing schoolgirls lining up to get locks of it and run off. Oh, I've got excellent hair. That, that's how this guy is treated in the culture. There are two problems with this development. Both of, us are, both of these will remind you of Saul. First, external beauty, never the quality God uses to determine who he is going to raise up or exalt. I'm living proof of that. External beauty is not how God finds somebody. In fact, people judge by appearance. God judges by the heart. And as we know in Scripture, he consciously, it would appear, works against beauty in many cases to mock or undermine that tendency to associate success, power, and ability with looks. That is, he brought Christ, we know from Isaiah, into the world with an appearance that was intentionally modest, underwhelming, average, unremarkable, so that we wouldn't be attracted to him by that way, by appearance sake. And I'm not saying, obviously, everyone who serves God can't be good looking. That's not my point. My point is that when we go looking for the candidates, we look for people who come from central casting. And it happens all the time. I mean, we do it instinctively. We don't even think about it. Uh, especially when you get into positions that have to stand up in front of people, pastors, whatever. You know, if you ever see how that process goes, I haven't, it's not what I've had to do too often, but I've been a, an outside observer, consultant, if you will, and sometimes you see the people they're parading through and you're like, I know why you picked that guy. You're right? YouTube videos, he's got the website, he's got the hair, he's got the, you know, he wears the jeans with the holes in him, he's got the whole thing going. Of course that's why you picked the guy. Couldn't teach his way out of a paper bag, but yeah, he looks the part. And he'll make it through the process, at least to some point. Why? Because he just he looks so good up there. That's how we act. Well, no, no one says that, right? No one says that, but that's how we think. It also brings bias in, right? We want people that look like us. We don't like the people that don't look like us. So there is that tendency to just skew the process, and God's looking at a heart. He doesn't even care what the container looks like, because he made it. So the first problem here is they're judging in a way that was going to leave them with the wrong guy. I don't know how Solomon looked, but Absalom had him, you know, beat. And if they had picked by looks, they would have had Absalom, not Solomon. Wrong guy. Wrong guy. Secondly, and more importantly, this man had not been anointed by God or chosen by God. He isn't the right guy. They can want him all they want. They're going to be sorely disappointed. He's not going to get the job. And that sets up a dangerous situation. That is, you have people, depending on a certain outcome, politically speaking, and their hearts are sold for it, and when they don't get it, what are they going to do about it? They can't accept that that's God's choice. They have to see it as a problem and something they're going to have to go solve. And they solve it by ripping the country apart, aligning themselves behind a non-legitimate leader who they thought had to be the right guy. Meanwhile, we hear at the end, Absalom has a family and a future, but David holds him back, and he resents it. Last verse, verse 28. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. A son of the king living in the city with the father, that is the king, and not seeing him for two years is an astounding statement. Especially in a culture in which family, mealtimes together, feasts together, and never, never mind the formality of palace life and the expectation that he'd be involved in that. All of that is being neglected. For two years he's basically on house arrest 
or at least kept outside the corridors of power. He is the heir apparent, at least publicly, and he's being treated like a pariah. That leads Absalom to start making his own plans. Basically, if David won't treat him as the rightful next king, he'll take the throne on his own terms. <laughs> Sin has consequences. And we repeat that phrase, but it's not simply to state the obvious, it's as a warning, right? When you say that to someone, you're trying to warn them. Sin has consequences. Knowing sin may feel good in the moment, but yet it ultimately takes you somewhere you don't want to go, then you should conclude it's better not to sin. David's not picking up that lesson with his kids. He's now treating Absalom in a very hurtful way, and as a result, he's sowing new seeds. And now that he's pardoned Absalom and yet won't give him the time of day, he has moved this story now to a point where the problems aren't going to stay contained within the brothers. Absalom's powerful enough and he's popular enough that he can move the hearts of the nation. And that puts David in a whole new level of hurt. I suspect that if we made our goal being the best husband, the best wife, the best mother, or the best father, we would find most of our other sins disappearing too. If David had become the right man of God in his home and with his love life, how much of everything else about his story would have been different? Let's finish in a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, I do pray that what we learn out of David's life will extend into our everyday thinking and acting as parents, as spouses, as individuals in any walk, that we'll remember the good of a man who was persevering, a man who sought you in prayer, a man who had faith to take on impossible odds, a man who did many things that we clearly look up to and should, but not a perfect man, a man who had fault, and a man who sometimes made mistakes, and we know, Father, those two can be instructive, and we want to learn from the mistakes as well and not repeat them ourselves. Help us in that regard. If there's those who might be contemplating their own failures in family life, in discipline, in dealing with uh, children, Father, give us the, the confidence to know that in grace all is forgiven and that by your wisdom living in us we can do better and that those things are not irretrievable or lost forever. But Father, do help us do better. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.